right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan and Danny. Hi, everyone. Good to be back. It's been, uh, what, a few weeks now, Ryan? It has been a few weeks, and it is good to have you it back. Has, it has. <laughs> and it's actually, Danny is the reason we have the guest today that we do. So please welcome Donna Ham. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Danny. Thank you for having hey, me. Hi. Yeah, thank you for joining us. I'm I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, if you didn't catch this from the title, we're going to be discussing prison reform in the U.S. And the reason that we had Donna on is because Donna is a retired judge and is the founder and executive director of Middle Ground Prison Reform, which is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization that was officially formed in 1983. And she is a former non-attorney lower court judge in the Coconino and Maricopa counties. I think I said those right. <laughs> okay. Uh, before we get into uh, our discussion today, got a couple of stuff for you. Make sure that you uh, are following us on our socials. I'll link those below. Uh, so you can follow at Between the Liars on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And Danny, what is your what is your social handle? With TikTok, it is Navy Doc 1981. And that is my go-to to share what's going on with political, personal, everything. So uh, Navy Doc 1981, you can find my videos there. I, I I try to post daily, but there are times that I just so it happens. Uh, I believe my Instagram. <laughs> I believe my my Instagram is Roswell nineteen eighty one. Um, I'm on that also. Okay. Well, we. I'll also link those in the descriptions below. Uh, Donna, do you have any social medias? I do. Uh, of course, uh, we have a website which is middlegroundprisonreform.com. Um, I have. Uh, I'm on Twitter. It. They. Sh- uh, thanks to Twitter, they shortened it to at ground reform okay that's little ground reform on twitter uh we also have a facebook account which is middle ground and um i'm on instagram but i don't know how you reach me (laughs) well that's (laughs) that's all right um i'll i'll get those and link them at the end before this goes out officially then so before we get started anything you two want to throw out there um, I would like to. So today we're we're going to be speaking about the prison reform, and here in Maricopa County, our uh, county attorney, former county attorney, who had uh, pr- uh, recently resigned, uh, she passed away. Uh, she was 45 years old, a mother of two, and, and left her husband and ch- children behind. She had been attacked for some of her policies and and some of the things that she wanted to implement, uh, and she had been attacked publicly, I say attacked because, well, she was attacked, um, not physically, but verbally. And that I wanted to, to take a moment to recognize her. And I want to also segue off of that and let the people, let the people know that no matter where we are on the political spectrum, or if you don't like this person or, or whatever, we need to be kind with our words. You know, I don't know what happened with Miss Adele. I have no idea. All I know is that she was struggling with alcohol um, and she passed away suddenly. So uh, I don't like to speculate and I, and I won't, but regardless, the alcoholism goes hand in hand with being, covering up those emotions of being attacked. And I need, I just want everybody to, to remember and be cognizant that we are human beings and we are we do have feelings and they affect us. And, you know, just be cognizant of that and, and be kind because that's huge. There are ways to go about disagreement without being hateful. And we should all practice that because it's important, um, not only for yourself, but for the person that you're disagreeing with, because you don't know where they are at that time in their life in here. And that's what matters. So I'd like to take a moment couple seconds of silence for her, if you don't mind. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a, this is a topic that is incredibly tricky 
because there's there's not necessarily a single right answer. And oftentimes I think it's even more tricky to reach a resolution because a lot of people aren't even aware of some of the issues that exist. So I'd like to kind of kick off this discussion, turn it over to Donna, and I would just love to ask, you know, what led to you founding Middle Ground Prison Reform? I'd love to hear the backstory on that. Thank you. I uh, And by the way, thank you, Danny, for that um, comment about Adele Alistair. 100% agree. And by the way, that leads to prisoners, ex-offenders who are definitely a class of our society who need to have a second chance, who should not be known only for their worst moment or their worst act, and that people, when they want to, can recover from even very serious crimes and become good people, responsible people, people who make a contribution. So we need to all remember that as well when we're talking about prisoners. Um, so I'll give you the short version of how little came about. Um, I became a lower court judge in, in Coconino County, which is near Flagstaff, Arizona, in the early 1980s. You know, it was very clear that there was some police bias against Native Americans. Those are the bars where they hung out to arrest people coming out. They didn't hang out outside the country club where the university professors and other people were uh, also exiting and getting in their cars and maybe having too much alcohol. And there was just this clear sense that uh, the justice system is just perfect when you read about it on paper. But the working, the operational uh, outcomes of the justice system do not work as well for minorities, for poor people, uh, for people of color, uh, ethnic groups, and so forth. And, and, and that was a big concern to me. So I arranged to go down to the Arizona State Prison because I kind of wanted to see what happened at the end of that snake that I call the criminal justice system. And so I went on a tour of the Arizona prison. I met some prisoners who at that time were participating in a very unique program. Northern Arizona University, which is located in Flagstaff, was conducting a bachelor's degree program at the Florence prison in the late 1970s, early 80s. And it was unique because staff and inmates were attending classes together. Uh, it, that was the only program in the United States where prison guards and inmates were attending college-level classes together. And you can imagine the exchange of ideas and opinions that occurred in a class like that. And these guys were earning their bachelor's degree in applied sociology. Long story short, I went, I met some very distinguished prisoners who were the top of their class. Um, I became friends with one of them in particular, who six and a half years later, a leap of faith, I married him while he was still in prison. Uh, he ultimately earned a commutation of sentence, executive clemency from the governor, and was uh, paroled and went to law school, graduated, passed the bar exam once he was released, but they refused to admit him because of his felon. So he has, uh, he's been a major supporter of Middle Ground. I started Middle Ground because there, there was so much disinformation or no information for the visitors and families. And when I became a visitor, and subsequently a family member, I felt like we needed a voice at the legislature. And that's primarily what Middle Ground does. So then if I'm understanding correctly, you're kind of the, it's almost like a liaison between what is the legislator and what is the prison system, if I've understood you correctly. I'll be at the legislature. We, we conduct public uh, seminars for families to try and educate them. Uh, best navigate the criminal justice system, but probation, parole. And then uh, we also have engaged in litigation against the Department of Corrections at times. 
and we've been very successful at that when we've litigated. We're very careful of the issues we choose, usually involve violation of a constitutional right. So I also wanted to, uh, may I, sorry, Ms. Donna, but um, she is such a wonderful liaison when the incarcerated person is inside and families are so stressed out and worried and don't know what's going on, uh, Ms. Donna. And she does this, she and James do this basically alone. And can you imagine the number of letters and emails and stuff that she gets? And she replies, you know, and James, I don't know if James replies, but I know Donna does. And um, to try and inform the family members of what's going on, you know, especially when COVID hit, you know, the, they weren't giving masks. And uh, Donna was a voice for that. And, oh, I get chills, you know, just how passionate this woman is for the incarcerated people. And I got to tell you, I would not, and she, she will deny this, but I would not, I don't know, I can't say that. I do not believe that I would be the woman I am today, sitting here, doing what I do, and without her help during my case when it was refiled. And I can be the face of that incarcerated person that says, yes, middle ground is a wonderful, uh, <laughs> wonderful nonprofit. So I'm so glad you agreed to come on, Miss Donna, because you're so informative and just an amazing woman. So thank you. That that is very kind of you. You know, uh, James and I. A lot of people thought that when James got out of prison in 1992, fell off into the sunset, and you know, um, a window of opportunity that had not been provided to other people and that we needed to kind of pay it forward. And uh, so that's what we've been doing. And uh, we are now into our uh, 40th year. And we do get lots of mail. We get about 300 letters on average a month from private prisons, state-operated prisons, federal prisons, even out-of-state prisoners that we really uh, are not able to help us directly because we don't know their systems as well as we do in Arizona. But we we try to help as many people as we can, and that's the goal. It sounds like Arizona's got something very helpful for the prisoners then. Do you know if there's anything available in other states, like similar programs, to advocate on behalf of prisoners and their families? Uh, there are other advocacy groups that operate throughout the country in, in various states. I know uh, Oregon has uh, an exceptionally active group. Colorado has, and they're, they're, some of them are funded by state agencies. Middle ground has been unique, I think, because we have always refused to accept any public monies um, or grant monies. We operate completely on voluntary donations because we do be beholden to any particular group that tells us, you know, you're attacking public figures or sacred cows. Uh, back uh, a few years ago, we had a sheriff here that I'm sure you may recall, whose name was Joe Arpaio. Uh, we successfully sued him on a particular issue and won, uh, uh, you know, a permanent injunction against him on a privacy issue. And uh, we didn't have to worry about anyone telling us, back off, you know, you're, going, you're being too rough on it. I could call him what I thought he was in public, which was a buffoon. And, uh, <laughs> and that's, you know, you can't do but <clears throat> you. You won't be getting any future checks. <laughs> That's one thing that also I really, really find amazing about Middle Ground Prison Reform is the, is the fact that they are doing this on their own. And, um, you know, the optics surrounding that even makes Middle Ground more reliable, not reliable, but more that it's, they're not, like you said, beholden to anybody else or they're not saying what they're saying because somebody asked, paid them to do so. Right. And I mean, as huge as Middle Ground is, Miss Donna, it would be easy for you to get, you know, federal grants and, and whatnot. And I think I, I, I respect you so much for that. And like I said, you're just an amazing person. We have found, and this, this ties into what we're talking about today, Ryan, which is prison reform and the entire sort of 
national movement because there does seem to be more interest in prison reform, let's say during the last decade or so than there has been in a very long time. But part of the sadness that I have about that is that there are funding sources who expect results, obviously, when they give a grant or uh, award monies to a particular organization to accomplish something. And so what we've seen happens at the legislature is, first of all, some pretty bizarre approaches have been taken to try and address some problems that we've actually had to oppose when ordinarily you would think we would support them because they're being proposed by an advocacy group. Um, But secondly, um, that advocacy group then is required to report quote-unquote success to their granting agency. And so there tends to be a little bit of an exaggeration or manipulation of the outcomes when in fact, you know, the, the results, the actual on-the-ground results have not been as successful as maybe they've been painted. So we've, we've been careful to try and avoid that and, um, and just be honest. And, and people forget that our name is Middle Ground. That means they do not believe that the prison gate should be opened up and every single person in prison should be released to the community. We just, we, my husband, who spent 18 years in prison, and I'm sure Danny will tell you the same thing, there are some dangerous people in prison who shouldn't be in the community. They, for whatever reason, they are a danger to themselves or to others or to both. And so our goal is to have humane, dignified treatment, constitutionally adequate treatment for every single person in prison, no matter whether they have committed the worst crime or not. And then ancillary to that, of course, we think that far fewer people, non-dangerous offenders, should even go to prison when there's something that we can be doing with them more effectively in the community, in particular substance users and mentally ill. I think that raises an important point then that what what is the point of prison, right? Like in general, we would think it's to make them citizens, if they're going to be released, right? Like we want them to be reintegrated, but that's not always the case. Like sometimes they come back completely stripped of their civil rights. Like Danny, we talked a little bit, I think in your other segment, you know, there are certain things that you don't get for a while. And depending, you know, if you, if you have committed a felony, you will, I, I, it might depend on the state, but you're going to be stripped of your right to vote. You're going to be stripped of your right to bear um, a firearm. Like there's a lot of things that are stripped away. And so then those who are in favor of prison reform, Form tend to really focus in on those things. I'm wondering what else might be going on that is an issue that we're seeing either in the prisons or in that reintegration portion. I'd love to hear kind of what's going on there. I'll give you my what's going on or what has happened in my case. You know, I did four months in the Department of Corrections um, for a felony DUI, and uh, nobody was hurt by the grace of God. Thank you. And it's difficult not only to find housing as a felon, um, if you want safe, secure, I mean, safe as within the community, housing, being a felon is, is not is not good in order to do that. Uh, finding employment while you're a felon is difficult. And just the negative connotation surrounding the word felon and even formerly incarcerated um, I don't know why there needs to be a name associated with me when it comes to that. That is why I am so vocal and I'm so open about my past and my substance abuse past and my time in in jail and my time in prison, Uh, because the louder we are and the more we vocalize this, the less stigmatized, I believe, it becomes. Uh, along with mental health issues, you know, it's people, people are, it's taboo. It's almost embarrassing. Like I was, I, I was shameful for a long time. I was, I was embarrassed. I was full of shame. And I, I, I felt, which I did let people down. 
but that I was worthless and I let everybody down and why would anybody want to be around me? I have nothing to give, you know, I'm a felon. I was in prison, you know, and I, but then like people like Donna came into my life and Representative Blackman at that time. And they reminded me who the hell I was. And that light came back inside me. And I remembered and I started advocating for myself. I started being vocal. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mess mess up here and there. Um, I'm, I say mean things once in a while, but, but I apologize. Here's the thing. Today, I'm cognizant about everything that I do. I think before I speak. Uh, I think before I act. And I just want the world to know that just because I went to prison and because I have multiple DUIs and an aggravated assault in the past, that does not mean that I am a terrible person at my core. That means I was going, or even other people, but I'm not going to speak for them. I was going through a difficult time and I handled it the incorrect way. Here's the thing. People can change and they, and if they work hard and if they persevere, they can and they will. Um, I just, I want the world to see that and to stop hindering us that are trying because we hinder, like we hold ourselves down hard enough as it is, you know, or we kick ourselves, you know. So we just need some help from the community to help lift us up in order to succeed. And keeping us out of safe housing and keeping us unemployed is just going to kick us back into the system. So anyway, that's that's what was difficult for me. But since I'm so vocal and I'm so loud and I share my change, I don't have such a difficult time getting housing or whatnot. You know, you just have to be very careful about where you go uh, for rent by owner or something so you can explain to your, you know, the owner of the place or whatnot and employment too, you know, it's, you just have to explain and, and show that you've changed. So I'd like to add to that too. And, and uh, Danny is absolutely right. I mean, our system of re-entry for people who have been incarcerated is, is very lacking. Uh, we, we have pilot programs that again are funded second chance act and so forth. They're funded by the government. And so if the government is dangling, you know, a billion dollar program for Second Chance Act, then suddenly the uh, prison system will have a reentry program that they are funding. And of course, it's limited to a very few number, relatively speaking, uh, of people who are released from prison, but they fill it up with enough people so that they can collect the grant money. But if next year, Congress, in its ultimate wisdom, decides that teaching prisoners how to make sushi, it will reduce recidivism, then what you will see is all of the reentry programs will die and wither, and suddenly they will be teaching sushi making in prison because they're following the money. So there's no coordinated effort, really. And you'd think that as long as they've been in business uh, as a prison system, that they would have a really good data and idea about how to successfully reintegrate. But let's talk about the front end of the system as well before people ever go. You know, in Arizona, and in many other states, decades ago, we closed our mental health institutions. And so what happened is all of those folks who should have been going in for professional mental health care, and I'm not saying that there weren't problems with those systems, those people ended up in the criminal justice net under that umbrella. And so in Arizona, 50% of the people in prison have a mental health classification score that requires them to take medication for depression, for ADHD, for schizophrenia, for any, you know, bipolar. And so we are sending people to prison who really should be in the community with professional help. And it's an awful misnomer that people have that somehow, and including judges who believe this, you don't go to prison and suddenly have a therapist assigned to you who's going to give you individual counseling and therapy. That does not happen. 
if you're lucky, you get to participate in a group session that may or may not be run by a peer counselor who is another inmate who's gotten some training about how to run a group session. And I think Danny can back me up on that. The rest of folks who come into prison for therapeutic type programming are often volunteers on AA or NA. Those people uh, come and go. So the program is dependent on how many volunteers happen to be willing to come into prison. And it's just a very haphazard, slap-shot approach to recidivism that is driven by funding. And there's no real philosophical commitment to rehabilitation, which is why we have such a high recidivism rate. So they need to get serious about what is even their mission. Uh, they say their mission is public safety, but how do you translate into operational success unless you are rehabilita rehabilitating the people who are under your care sometimes for years and in Arizona needlessly for decades? When I went for those four months, I had to do the DUI course there. Let me tell you, Ms. Donna, the person, you'll know, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the, it's not Taros, but it's another one that goes in the prison. Sage. Sage. Uh, the, the man who did our, our class there every day, he'd come in and tell us how his dog was, and then he'd fall asleep. He, we would, we would color. <laughs> I mean, I got stung by a bee inside. I mean, that was like all I remember from that class. You know, that was it. Fell asleep. I still remember his dog, Lucy, was 11 years old. And I mean, this is a DUI class that people need that are in prison. They should be learning, you know, coping skills and ways to, you know, a, a relapse prevention plan or, you know, something, because even if they don't use it at that time, that seed is planted just like it was in mine in 2010 when my family flew me out here for the rehab, you know, I wasn't ready, but that seed was planted and we're losing people in there because of the lack of programming. And if that seed isn't planted, they're just going to go right back out and most likely reoffend. And I am not okay with that. So I don't know how we get in there and we turn it around or if it's even feasible, but that is something that I personally would like to work towards. There seems to be a lot of tensions like between if you have funding, you are beholden to the people who give the funding. But if you don't have funding, then you get Danny's situation, which is just a really terrible rehabilitation program because you don't have enough people to work with or enough training or whatever the issue is. And it, really seems to be like that's a huge obstacle. Like, I, I, and I don't really know what the answer to that would be. Answer, I mean, at least, you know, look, I'm, I'll call myself an expert on Arizona corrections because I do know that system backwards and forwards. But like I like to tell people, uh, you know, it scares me to death when I hear someone say, well, I've got 20 years uh, of experience in corrections because what that really means is they have one year of of experience repeated 19 times. So what they have to do is start at the top, which is the governor in Arizona has to appoint a director because in Arizona, that's, that's who's in charge. It's part of the executive staff of the governor, uh, the director of the corrections system, which is now in Arizona over a billion dollar uh, budget, annual budget. And he has to appoint someone who truly understands corrections, not an ex-law enforcement officer. God bless them. They have a role, but they, they don't know about corrections and they don't study how to correct people, okay? So it has to be someone with experience and success in corrections. And then from there, you flow down with, for example, a classification system that doesn't separate people necessarily like we do in Arizona by their crime, but by their willingness to participate in change. You want to separate people who don't care about change 
from those who really understand that they have hit rock bottom by going to prison and now it's time to put on the big boy pants and you know and understand that they've got some changes hard looks in the mirror that they have to go through that's going to take some personal pain some personal sacrifice and um the problem is you know we have we have extraordinarily long sentences in Arizona. So some compare our sentences to the worst in the country in some respect. And I think in some respects we are. You get a person who goes to prison who feels like he or she has been from the get-go unfairly treated by the system. They're not in a mindset to even admit that they need to change. They're busy and justifiably so, railing against the system that put them there and comparing themselves to other people who have more money or a different skin color or a different ethnicity group who did the same criminal act and who did not end up in prison as they did. And so they're fighting the system rather than looking in the mirror at themselves. So you've got a whole cohort of people who who are angry and bitter and and don't want to even consider what the work they have to do on themselves. So there needs to be a classification system that recognizes that there, and people will go between the ones who want to change and the ones who don't, and people will screw up and they'll go back and forth and they'll if they're an addict, they'll use and go back and forth, and there needs to be the flexibility for people to do that. But people who are in the group that want to change are going to help each other, and those people are going to move through a system that will result in rehabilitation. So there are so many things wrong with our system. We could spend the rest of today on the problems. Uh, but I think that people going in are feeling so angry and bitter at the system and the unfairness that they feel they've experienced that it's very difficult to sit down ultimately and look in the mirror and say, you know what, I did some things to get here and I need to at least change those things. And and that takes courage and it takes help sometimes because not everyone is capable of reaching that kind of self-awareness uh, on their own. They need help. Doesn't exist. So that, Donna, you hit the nail on the head with all of that. And Ryan, uh, Angela, and what she's asking regarding, I don't think Donna has the comments on, but Donna, she said, Ms. Ham, how much judicial discretion do state judges have in sentencing? And then she said, isn't that what judicial discretion is about? And I think this is a great way to segue into uh, what we want to talk about regarding mandatory sentencing yeah. and how the judges have no discretion. So yeah. let's uh, let's take that first one. You've been a judge. How much judicial discretion did you have specifically in the state of Arizona as far as sentencing? Did that did you get to create classifications, or is that a legislator thing that has to happen? Well, let me tell you. First of all, it Classification is entirely up to the Department of Corrections. That has nothing to do with legislation. But the laws which govern sentencing are entirely up to the legislature. And let me tell you that, and, and I was a lower court judge. I handled misdemeanor cases, okay? But the same uh, rules and laws govern felony charges, which are what lend, which lead people to go to prison. You could be a monkey and sit on the bench in Arizona for all the discretion that most judges have. And here's why. The prosecutors are the ones, first of all, who decide which charges to file, how many to file, whether to allege prior convictions that the person may have, which in Arizona ratchets the sentencing matrix to a different level, a more harsh level if they are alleging priors. Prosecutor decides whether there will be a stipulation in a plea agreement, which means that the judge now has no discretion. If there is a sensing range, for example, of a crime from 
seven years to 10 years to 21, which would be the fully mitigated, the presumptive all the way up to the aggravated. If there's a stipulation in the plea agreement that says the judge will give at least the presumptive sentence, and sometimes the stipulation is the judge will give 21 years or X number of years, that completely removes any option for any mitigation to be considered or for the judge to have any discretion at all. And that's where the monkey comes in because anybody could do that. You don't need a judge sitting there who has any experience or knowledge of the law in order to read a piece of paper that is essentially a contract between the state and the defendant that requires a particular sentence to be imposed. So we have that in every single instance of criminal sentencing in Arizona. And let me just give you one example real quickly. There was a client that I had many years ago who uh, postpartum depression, uh, cheating husband, found out that right after she had her baby, uh, her husband was having an affair with another woman. So she uh, kind of went crazy and uh, decided she wanted to have this woman removed. So she calls a friend of hers who happened to be an informant for the police uh, because she was trying to get out of some other criminal charges, and they reported her. So they had her meet in a parking lot with a undercover police officer. She told the guy, I want this girl you know, to be hurt or whatever, they charged her with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. That's what the prosecutor chose. That carries a required 25-year-to-life sentence, which is what she was convicted of. The prosecutor had the uh, option of charging her with a lesser crime that would have been an eight-year sentence which when you consider that no one was hurt, the only one she quote unquote conspired with was an undercover officer. And she could have gone to prison for eight years, which I think most reasonable people would agree that that would be a more reasonable sentence. She got 25 years to life. She is still, she's got eight more years to go till she's even parole eligible. That is a perfect example of prosecutorial, not only prosecutorial discretion, but prosecutorial uh, misuse of power in this state. And it happens, 95% uh, of cases go to plea bargain. So except for trials, the prosecutor controls the sentence. And that's where we end up in addition with a cooperating legislature who has given these tools to the prosecutor to allow these stacked, mandatory, consecutive, harsh, prior conviction sentences that we have in Arizona. So Ryan, um, everything she just said is exactly the reasons why I fought with help and later help and some other help. I thought when my case was refiled, you know, I was looking at 10 to 15 years if I had gone to prison. My first plea was three and a half. I never once said that I didn't deserve to go to prison because, you know, I always took full accountability for my actions and what I had done. But I did not believe that if I were sent back to prison, that it would better anything, but have the possibility of sending me and spiraling me backwards. Now, luckily, I had the platform that I had uh, to be able to fight that for 386 days, to be exact. And I did. So I know firsthand because they, they talked about switching it to endangerment. Then they talked about at the very end, they finally lowered it to a class one misdemeanor with no prison. And so this whole time, they're sending me through all of this. And my friends here, my family, all of this trauma, you know, after all of this hard work, I had turned my life around. And, 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 you know, it's not okay just to be sending people in without judicial discretion to look at the whole picture. Because we don't all fit under one umbrella. You know, you try to put the rock and the Hulk 
and me under one umbrella, it ain't going to work, right? So um, it just needs to be changed because the moment I walked into that courtroom and saw that judge, Commissioner Lafave, she was my judge back in 2015. And by the grace of God, I had her for every case. And that's unheard of, she said. She had no say. And she told me she did not want to send me to prison, you know, um, but she had no choice. This was back in 27. I just skipped back to 20 because of the work that I had done, you know. So I, she ended up having to send me to prison for in 2017 uh, because I fell under that mandatory sentence because of the prosecutor did not agree to lower, which they have full capability of doing. I don't know if they're on a number or like a quota or I don't know what the heck or if it's just like a pride, power, egotistical thing. I'm not sure. But whatever it is, it ruins lives and it, it hurts families. And a lot of times it's not fair. Um, although the law is not a fair thing, but um, you know, it's just, it's not okay. And it needs to be changed. The, the, the judge should have discretion to look at every aspect of what's going on. Let me just add one thing here, Ryan. And I think it's important, a fixed number of years. There's no such thing in Arizona for example, as a five to life sentence. So that span of years is not possible. When we changed the criminal code in 1978 in Arizona, when we got determinate sentences, which allowed there to be a range of a minimum, a mitigated, a presumptive, an aggravated. But, and I happen to agree that determinate sentences are a good idea in the sense that you might have, if we had fully indiscriminate sentences, looking at judges in different counties, rural counties, uh, counties where the politics are one way or the other, where you might have wildly disparate sentences for the same crime just because the judge came from a different political party or a different philosophy or... Um, there's been even comments about death penalty cases already that we have fewer death penalty cases charged in our outlying counties in Arizona because they're so expensive to prosecute that uh, only in the major Pima County and Maricopa County, which are where the major Arizona cities are, do they uh, prosecute death penalty cases? So people, you know, tend to say, well, you can get away with murder in uh, Yuma or in Flagstaff or in Navajo County, but you can't get away with the same kind of murder in Maricopa or Pima. But what needs to be is, in my opinion, and I'll go with this, a balance, a middle ground, if you will, uh, where judges have a range but they then have the freedom without the prosecutor's interference to use mitigation or aggravation to sentence within that range. So that would leave us with our determinate sentences, but would take the prosecutor out of being the final arbiter of what sentence is imposed or what limitations are on the judge. And that's what we really have a problem with. There are people in Arizona, and trust me on this, I am not, you know, I'm not in favor of sex offenses or child pornography or anything like that at all. But we have, because we have a mandatory minimum sentence of flat 10 years in prison for every picture that a person could be convicted of, it's a mandatory minimum of 10 years. It can be 17 years or it can be 21 years for every picture. We have people in Arizona who've written to us who are serving 300-year-plus sentences uh, for having 20 or 30 pictures of child pornography. And I'm not uh, suggesting that that is not a crime that should not be punished. But come on, you, you can't do a 200 or 300 year sentence. So who are we kidding? And when Danny talks about the impact on the families of all of this tension and stress during the year or two years that a case is being processed, think about the waste of taxpayer money 
that we are all paying when we have these stupid uh, laws that don't even make sense to a logical person just because it's showy for politicians to pound on their chest about how long they're going to send somebody to prison. It is, you know, it, it's beyond logic. It's, it is abhorrent and it's a waste of taxpayer money and we should all be concerned about that. We ought to be putting money into effective interventions. Right. And I think we can agree, and most people would agree, there are sentences that need to be heftier than others, right? Like a, a possession of marijuana should not carry the same charge or the same sentencing as, let's say, child pornography. And like it, whether it's violent or nonviolent, um, Danny, you had charges where it wasn't interacting with other people. It was more possession of something as opposed to a driving under the influence, as opposed to aggravated assault. Uh, assault. This comment right here says that you're a human being and you paid your debt to society. This kind of goes back to once you were getting out, that should be the end of it. I think that ties into what Danny was just talking about a moment ago about we don't all fit under the same umbrella. And what Donna was just talking about as far as the end goal is to pay your debt to society to be reintegrated, but it still carries that stigma. So we've kind of come around full circle. What do you think we should be doing to move towards kind of that middle ground of, you know, there is a stigma. There's more of a stigma for someone who possesses child pornography than there is for someone who, you know, possessed narcotics, right? And, but prisoners, and if you just have felony tagged after your name, it doesn't distinguish between those. Do you guys have any thoughts on how we might bridge that gap, reach that middle ground to kind of alleviate that situation? Uh, well, I'll I'll jump in and, and leave some time for Danny. Uh, you know, first of all, it kind of starts in the cradle. We have to have some things going on in our society that help people when they need help before they fall into that criminal justice net where they are uh, violating laws and being arrested for it. So we have to have some uh, better way to assist people before they ever come to the attention of the criminal justice authorities. And then if that happens, if it proceeds to that level, uh, we need to be careful to make sure that we are doing, you know, when I was a judge and I had the flexibility because I was doing misdemeanors, I always tried to look at what am I doing for someone instead of to someone? What can I do for this person? And so it might be ordering them, instead of paying a fine, which they couldn't afford anyway, or sending them to jail, which I had the authority to do for up to six months, maybe I had them do community service work where they were chopping firewood for, you know, senior citizens and Flagstaff for the winter, or they were donating blood, uh, you know, can't order people to donate blood, but that you could offer that as an option and so forth. So you try to get people to understand that the more you feel a part of the community, the more you're going to feel integrated and want to be in cooperation with that community. So prison, if you ultimately end up there, needs to be a place where there is a concerted effort to get people to understand that they are part of the community and we just want them to behave a little differently in the community so that they are not harming other people or themselves. And so if you can get people to come out of prison a little better than they were, then, then now what is happening, which is often worse than they were. You know, Arizona has a terrible gang problem that they are not in control of. And so people go to prison and the first thing they're doing is defending themselves against gangs. This doesn't happen so much uh, in, the, in the women's prison, does happen there, but not so much as in the male prison, but it's a terrible problem. And so Arizona happens to have one of the largest protective custody sections of groups of people. About 10,000 prisoners in Arizona 
are classified to protective custody. That's 25% of the population. And that's because they need protection from gang extortion, assaults, intimidation, threats, etc. And we don't control gangs in our prison very well. So medical care creates problems. They need people going into prison who have serious medical problems need to know that they are going to be treated humanely for their medical, for diabetes, for heart conditions, for high blood pressure, for their mental health problems. It is the system is a dumpster fire and there are so many problems that, you know, I don't want to be the person that says we need to blow it up and start over, but it's darn close to that. There are so many problems that are endemic to the system that it's going to require an entirely different approach. And I'm not sure I know of a single politician that I've ever come in contact with who has the courage to work on that problem from that angle. I, yeah, I agree 100% with what everything that you just said. As for reintegrating into society, you know, I only did four months. But let me tell you, I walked out of those gates and I was like this. I, I was just ashamed and embarrassed and I felt dirty and I just felt not, not physically dirty, but just Ugh, inside, you know, and going to Walmart, I was just anywhere, Walmart, Target, wherever. I just felt like everybody was looking at me like, oh my gosh, she is a, she just got out of prison. She's a felon. And then um, stay away from her kids, grab their kids, get close. All of that's obviously made up, you know, not, it's it's our inter, inner voice telling us, hey, we're, we're worthless, man. The community hates us. So that is another reason why I am so vocal and I am so publicize, I publicize myself and my story to show the community and people who are getting out of prison that A, for the people coming out of prison, you can change or if you have, you continue working on it, you know, you can grow, you can succeed. And to the community, we are, we are also humans. We are people and we just want another chance. And a lot of us that come out and you know, I don't know statistically speaking, but I, I know personally from the women that I met inside, the ones that are out, I would say 90% of them are succeeding. Um, of course, the majority of them have minimum wage paying jobs because, and that's great. I'm so glad that they are able to work, but they have potential to do more. They don't feel that they can do that because of this, this the stigma associated with being a felon. So. Again, I, that's why I'm so public, just to show the community to that we are good. Not, I mean, I, I, a lot of us are good. You know, we have the possibility of being a contributing member of society. If you just allow us that opportunity to do so, you know, I'm not saying put somebody in who has a um, larceny charge to be your accountant or, you know, or like your inventory person. I mean, obviously you're not going to want to do that right away or whatnot, but I have a DUI, you know, I've an aggravated assault and luckily I have a big mouth and I'm able to advocate for myself and I tell my story and I'm proud of it. I no longer hold shame associated with that. And for, for some reason, you know, it works for me. And I hope that a lot of people see this one and and are able to realize and maybe think about it for a while that just because I we go to prison for a while does not mean that we are terrible and worthless and have nothing to give back because guess what I have more to give today than I did before I ever went in you know I did not have this type of I did have a giving heart, but I didn't know what my, my niche was. Now I know. I'm on fire for this. Like, you know, we are human beings. And like, I sorry, I told you I'm on fire, man. And uh, I just want the world to know that we're good. Give us a chance. I'm not saying we all will succeed. There will be people that fail, but guess what? They do too. Yep. Civilians fell. Civilians. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> <was> my military. <laughs> All right. Well, Sorry, we. Guys. Ah! <laughs> you're good. 
Uh, all right, we will be right back with our hot takes. Okay, so before we get into our hot takes, I do want to remind people that if you're interested in the behind-the-scenes conversations before and after the show, you can join our memberships. Those are available, and you'll get access to our Discord channels. You can ask our guests questions. You can ask us questions off the air. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and jump right into our hot takes. I'll go first, then we'll get to Danny, and then Donna, you'll wrap us up. So my first hot take... Uh, I guess I didn't really put a whole lot of thought into how much discretion the prosecutors have. I always thought that the mandatory sentencing really came down more to the judge's discretion. And so that was something that was neat to learn. I think what I would add to that then going forward is that there's a lot of stigma for people to not become prosecutors. So who becomes the prosecutors? The people who are all about the power, the prestige, et cetera. They want that to have that power, when in reality, we need people who are willing to make that change from the inside. So it seems like a large part of that power is given to the prosecutors and we need good people to wield it. Another big thing for me here is I think that we gloss over the importance of state elections a lot. Everybody shows up for the presidential election. Everybody shows up for your U.S. senators. We're coming up in an off year, but 2022 is still an election for a lot of senators, a lot of representatives, a lot of governors. If it's the governor who's appointing the people who oversee prison change, don't you think it's important you will elect a governor then that's going to move in the direction you want? Like, by and large, mostly you will be affected as an American citizen by your state laws. Because if you live in a state and you don't like what the president is passing for an executive order or what the U.S. Congress is passing— if you have a good governor, they can be a bulwark against that. They can pass legislation and block things. You are most likely to be affected by someone who's a bad governor who is not passing legislation that aligns with what you want. So I really think that it's important, especially after this discussion, if you're worried about the state of prisons, don't turn out hoping the federal government handles it. Turn out to the state elections and think about the impact that that's going to have. And then the last thing I'm just really fixated on how we have this constant tension between what is the purpose of prison? Well, it's to have people repay their debt to society. Well, then they still carry this stigma after they get out and they've supposedly repay that debt to society. There's not a perfect answer here, but I really think that we might need to start changing our mindset about what does this need to look like? If you've got someone who's violent, if you've got someone who's committing crimes against other people, prison is probably a great place to at least keep them from affecting other people. But is the prison that they're in going to just make them a rageful person once they get out? Like, that's another important question that I think we kind of uncovered today. So anyway, those are those are my final thoughts. And I'll turn it over to Danny now. Thanks, Ryan. So I'm going to go ahead and just skip over that the, that first part um, where you were talking about the governor. And um, and so I'll leave that. Donna wants to talk about that because I'm not really well informed about all of that part of it. However, one thing that I, I do want to say that I would like to talk about it real quick in this hot take is how the county attorney here, I'm not sure about other states, but Republican, Democrat, um, I do not believe that it should, that position along with the sheriff should not be politically um, aligned. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Politically voted for, I can't think of the word right now, but it shouldn't be based on whether somebody's Republican, shouldn't be Democrat. It just should be somebody, you know, they get up there, they speak about what, how they're gonna help the community, how they're going to help the people who are being charged or, um, and also, you know, not keep it red and blue because that's not what it's about. It's about following the letter of the law and doing the right thing for the community and the people. So I believe that should be taken off the table completely. Um, like I said, same with sheriff. I don't think it needs to be Republican Democrat. I shouldn't, I, I completely disagree with that. Um, as for prevention of like getting back in a recidivism programming within the system is terrible. Um, and I will say it again, planting, and I'm using substance abuse for my, for this planting that seed of recovery and how to do it is imperative. Again, it, that seed was planted in 2010 and I, I didn't, water it until 2017 and uh, but it was there and 
we need to remember that and make sure and be able to plant that seed in, in these people's heads because we do have stuff to offer. And um, I, I would hope, and I'm going to think about this because I feel that there is a possibility of having something brought together that when people get out, maybe a class, maybe a something that I could talk to the folks coming out of prison about how to go about finding housing, how to go about getting a job and not, you know, cause you go and apply and apply and apply and are denied, 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 denied. It takes more than just on the computer and pushing a button and hitting send. So maybe it's something like that. And, the, and I would like to somehow speak to the community or have somebody speak to the community about people that change, you know, I think that there, I know a lot of, of women and men who've gotten out that could be stand next to me and be the face of formerly incarcerated who have recovered and are now contributing members of society. Allow us to help the community because a lot of us, that's what we want to do. We're just not given the opportunity to do so. Um, again, unless you have a big mouth like I do. And uh, I want to be heard because what I have to say is important for not only myself, but the people coming behind me. You know, I want to make that path a little smoother than the one that I've had to take. And um, I think that I have that opportunity and I would love to do something like that. So, Ryan, again, I love this show. Angela, I love you. I don't know who you are, but you're my favorite. Um, anyways, so thank you, Ryan. This is so fun. Ms. Bonner. Thank you. Well, I'm going to follow up on um, a little bit of what both you and, and Ryan talked about. Um, you know, one of the things that we uh, find out through our correspondence, through the letters we get, and now, of course, in the last uh, years, so email, uh, we get hundreds of emails as well. And one of the things that's important for families to find out about when they do have someone in prison is to educate themselves about the laws, uh, about the policies which govern that particular prison. Um, it's really an education process because you will get... Uh, you will empower yourself. And we try to conduct seminars to empower prisoner families to let them know what their rights are, what their responsibilities are, what the limitations are, what they don't have rights about. And to your point, Ryan, you know, um, federal prisoners are under an entirely different set of laws than individual state prisoners. And so when when people get excited, they'll hear on the news about Congress passing uh, the Second Chance Act or uh, some law, you know, that impacts federal prisoners. That does not have anything to do with state prisons. And so people need to understand that. And prisoners need to understand that because rumors in prison are rampant and they they really cause a lot of problems because people get their hopes up about something that is not going to come to pass because it does not apply to them. So we try to take that education process. Uh, sometimes it's hard because we have to give bad news to people that really want to kill the messenger, but we have, we're not going to lie to them. We're not going to sugarcoat information. And so we tell them and then it's up to them to process it. So there's a big difference between federal and state. The other thing is we didn't get to talk today about private prisons. And maybe that's a topic for an entirely different podcast because it probably is. But I will say that no matter what a person's feelings are about private prisons, they're pretty much here to stay. Uh, in Arizona, for example, we have contracted with private prisons for 20-year contracts. And at the end of that 20 years, the state of Arizona then owns that infrastructure, that prison. So it's kind of a rent-to-own situation. And one of the things that I want people to understand is the prisons had lots of problems before the private prisons came around. So no one should fool themselves into thinking that 
Private prisons are the cause of our problems in prisons. Every major tragedy and disaster, including escapes, suicides, murders, uh, rapes, that has occurred in an Arizona prison has occurred in a state-operated prison, not a private prison. And there's one exception to that, but but for the most part, that is absolutely uh, the case. So private prisons, you can argue the morality, you can argue lots of things about them, but they're here to stay. And so we need to figure out ways to make them work more transparency, susceptible to public records, all of the medical care, whether it's state or a private prison, is abysmal in any prison, and that needs to be worked on. So there are plenty of uh, issues to address, and I appreciate very much your interest in this topic because it's something that needs to have broad discussion. And, uh, and it needs to have stakeholders such as Danny and others who've been in prison brought to the table so that they have input into the outcomes that are happening. And that hasn't been the case in the past. There are dozens that I'm aware of, of prisoners who've gotten out of prison in Arizona who now have bachelor's and master's degrees and law degrees like my husband, they are never called upon by the prison system to go into the prison and do presentations or to mentor or uh, to provide anything. And I'll bet you all of them would be happy to volunteer to do that at no cost to the system. But they aren't asked. Why? because the prison system is afraid of people who have exercised their voice and have opinions. They want regimentation and the orderly operation of prison. And they don't consider people like Danny to be someone who would foster uh, the orderly operation of the prison because she would plant seeds in other people just like seeds were planted for her. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to have Donna back for discussion. And I, you're right. We didn't get to private versus state. And that I would love to dive into that. So we will have to have you back for that. Uh, Danny, great to have you back on our show. Uh, Miss Donna, thank you so much for your insight. I was thrilled to hear that we were going to have someone who's been in the system. And we kind of got both sides of this through the two of you. So thank you both for being here. Uh, remember that uh, to all our listeners, you can find Between the Liars on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on our social medias. I'm going to link Miss Donna and also Danny's stuff as well. And if you enjoy this show, give us a five-star review so we can get the words of Danny and Miss Donna out there. All right. Uh, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Goodbye for now. <laughs>